Hello and a big warm welcome to you and welcome to the Aware Parenting Podcast. My name is Marion Rose, PhD, and today I am so delighted to have back on the podcast my dear friend and colleague, Claire Louise Brumley, also PhD, who is also an Aware Parenting Instructor. Welcome, lovely Claire Hello. Louise. Thank you. It's always such a pleasure. I learned so much from you, Marion. Thank you very, very much. Well, I always learn so much from you. So we can be learning from each other today and I'm so willing also for the listeners to be learning lots too yeah so last time you came on it was episode 135 sleep stress and trauma and evolutionary perspective and this episode is going to be an evolutionary perspective on food and feelings so I'd love if you're willing for you to share about why this is an important topic to you your background with this so we know know, what you're coming from this wealth of experience and research that you have in this topic yeah and may this be a delicious conversation it's about food um so yeah i'd love to bring um through our conversation today like a frame of reference for making sense of this and for it to be really inspiring I think we're meant meant to have lots of feelings about food and really specific feelings like our whole health and vitality in life depends on eating life around us. Like we're literally taking in life every time we are eating. So I really welcome everyone's really big feelings because that is how we are meant to be around food. And so people come away from this conversation with nothing more than feeling passionate and feeling a deep sense of care, I feel really delighted. Yeah. Yes, I love that. I love that. And already I feel I feel inspired and excited. And I think it's really bringing back, isn't it, to our culture, this, this deep care, this passion. And I love what you said already about yeah, welcoming feelings. That, that's so beautiful. Thanks, lovely. Mm. So, yeah, do you mm. want to share a little bit about your background and what, what you come to this from? So, yeah, my background originally training as a therapist and then I did postgraduate training in nutrition and integrative medicine and I did my PhD in that field. So people can go back to that prior podcast and hear a little bit more. But the core question I was with was how can we best support optimal human health and nutrition with the idea that our biological needs are, of course, shaped through evolution And that 99% of that evolution occurred in a context very different to the environment we're navigating today. So, of course, when you look around at wild animals, they perfectly self-regulate their food needs. But there's not even a question. And we can too. And it's also at times very hard because we're no longer connected to our food in the way we were in our evolution. So I'd love to talk a little bit around some of those transitions we've made in our food and how we can reconnect with not so much the information. We've all got access to a lot of health information and some of it is useful and some of it isn't because at the end of the day we're still needing to use our number one research tool which is that experiential process of the food in front of us and making sense of how to best nourish our bodies with what we have in front of us. So that real bottom-up 
information and experimenting with that and using our senses and our, our taste and our touch and, and thinking about all the ways culturally we are actually a sort of step removed. We often don't know how our food is produced. I mean, even at basic level, we use cutlery. We don't touch things. So if there are parents with young children listening, I think some of this podcast will really appeal because I hope it's an invitation to really connecting with like maybe we can at the end of this, we're in the southern climate here, so we can go and get a mango and go and eat it with our little ones and just thoroughly enjoy it (laughs) and feel the information that we are taking into our bodies and feel how we respond to it because that's the number one information we actually need. It's not what we can go and read about. Yeah, and isn't that such a beautiful invitation for presence, for actually returning to more presence in our bodies, which is so much the core in aware parenting. We're really inviting not only our children to stay deeply connected with their innate wisdom through the presence in their bodies but actually I love that invitation for parents to actually we get to regain and reconnect with that innate wisdom through our experiences with our children and you know having a toddler is such a wonderful opportunity isn't it they're constantly inviting us to return to that that presence and that felt sense of what are we feeling in our bodies so beautiful which is the gift of aware parenting because it is this process for presencing with our children and with ourselves and we really need to do this around food particularly at this point in time because there's so many signals that are mudding the waters for us at the moment in the culture we're currently in and in the food supply we're currently in Yeah, so I'd love to talk more about that with you, that muddying process. But you were talking before about the steps or the process of moving away as a culture. Is that where you might like to start to really give that bigger context to how have we moved away? And this is really important information for us as parents to know this, isn't it? Mm. Well, let's go right back. Let's just take a deeper time perspective as a frame of reference. And just for a brief moment, think about what we would have eaten in that wild food model. And as I said in the last podcast, this is not to romanticise. You know, there was some really tough stuff and you're probably alive and really well or you, you, you could die. Like we have a lot of comfort wrapped around us and, and some safety in that, but there's also a lot of insecurity in that because, you know, in that wild food model, we were deeply secure to enable our evolution and to enable our big brains We had a totally reliable, stable food source, highly nutritious, high energy density. Would you Um, be willing to say a bit more about that? Because sometimes it's not the perception that we are told about in terms of this stability and this reliability (laughs) and this, you know, I've learned so much from you about this in our conversations. Would you be willing to share a bit more about that? Well, I think it's the, the lens that we, you know, we receive information within and, the, the colonists and Darwin's view came out of a model of survival of the fittest. And there is also a large body of research to highlight that, you know, and it's particularly around the human brain, that we actually needed for a really long period of time to have an abundance of that 
really nutrient-rich food that was easy to collect and enabled lots of time for lots of other activities and to enable us to manage to bring these really vulnerable, really compared to every animal, animal premature babies into existence and to nurture them in a way that meant we didn't even have free arms, unlike every other species. And I think the other factor is that when we're under stress, you know, when we're producing cortisol, our body does a steal to make the cortisol from our reproductive hormones, like from our estrogen progesterone. So you don't have babies under stress. I truly believe that we evolved in a context of abundance. That's all that makes biological sense. So what did we eat in the wild model? It was easy to collect stuff. Mollusks, crustaceans, fish, frogs, insects, birds' eggs, sometimes land animals and its organ meats and the skeletal muscle, and plants like the sto underground storage organs, stems, leaves, fruits, flowers, seeds, and, of course, it was seasonal. It wasn't always a lot of variety depending on where we lived, like the further away from the equator, clear differences in food. Happy to talk about more about that if you'd like. But there were far greater nutritional similarities in food eaten by hunter-gatherer groups worldwide than there is between our contemporary Western diet and that afforded by a wild food diet. Like the discrepancy is profound, actually. And this was a core part of my research where I was modelling, you know, the nutritional profile of what for me was the best organic model I could create and at the kind of more macro level you know you can balance up proteins carbohydrates and fats and you can actually do pretty well at balancing up the micronutrients vitamins and minerals where the differences start becoming really stark is around and I'm talking about um, plants here but around phytochemical content and when you think about a plant's immune system is most robust when it's fending for itself as soon as you put pesticides fertilizers on it it's outsourced its immune system so it doesn't have to produce the phytochemicals and so we're losing i mean we know the plethora of health benefits of those phytochemicals like you think resveratrol and grapes was so solidly researched and i think we don't have the science for this yet. It's, I think it's coming. I think it's going to be another layer on top. Like we also know that there's exomes in various foods with messenger RNA, like genetic material that we take into our body. We're literally eating information. And what information do we want to be taking into us? I want information that is coded for both plants and animals who are themselves optimally healthy, who are themselves living in their optimal environment and most adapted to. So it's this whole constant matrix, which in a way is incredibly simple. So every time we kind of step away from it, which is our kind of contemporary food system, we're in this constant dilemma of how do we meet our biological needs in a less natural and perhaps less optimal environment and look the same goes with animals like you know they know the differences between farm 
produced meats in terms of fatty acids. Like there's different compositions of those fats and then it's just not as optimal for us. And then we kind of try and do this really tricky process where we then try and use fish oils to try and fill the gap. But it gets more and more complicated. And, and look, the other thing we've done is we've, we now completely leave out certain food groups entirely. Like we used to get our calcium source from insects and reptiles, which we now replace with dairy. But back in time, we couldn't catch a wild animal and hold it still and milk it. But it's this dilemma. Well, where, where do we get our calcium from then? And I, I can't just say, well, let's just cut out dairy because that wasn't part of a wild food model because there's this gap in our modern system. And I think that's where, coming back to what we originally were saying, to really feel into our own individual body's response to the food we are going to take into us. And with our children are so able to use their sensory system to do this. And it's quite delightful to watch them doing it. Because then we can both have a guiding framework for kind of getting in the right direction and then have the primary material we need to go, oh, does this actually work? And there's all these other tricky things that we've done in our system. Like um, coming back, like more recent in time, it changes away from that wild food model. Of course, we domesticated animals and that brought in dairy. We brought in more grains through agriculture. But, you know, there's plenty of hunter-gatherer groups that all did a certain degree of farming. But then really big things happened around industrialization. So just over 200 years ago, we had the technology to refine grains, produce oils and sugar. And to give context, I was really interested in this. I wanted to know in the Australian Aboriginal population, they would eat about a kilogram, like a reasonably large jar of honey per person per year. That was it. Their fruits were not like wild fruits, so aren't as plumped up and sweet compared to what we can able access are able to access today. And then the changes have just keep going. Like 50, 60 years ago, we brought in the chemical inputs, the intensification of farming, genetically modified foods, plastics, just this increasing environmental contamination, which is going to change and muddy the signals our bodies give for trying to optimally nourish ourselves. And because it's like becoming so recognised and such a boom area of research is we're recognising that the microbiome, there's a whole rainforest in there. We have a certain like genome and certain number of genetics but the genetic material within our bodies, on our skin, in all our mucosal passageways, full of microbiota, the genetics of that system absolutely dwarf our own. So it's like, who are we? Who are we feeding? And it brings me back to that really big picture perspective of we are life, eating life, and when we can be, as and this is a term I use, created for my PhD, when we can be as biologically authentic as possible, our bodies signal clearly, are healthy, are strong, are fit, 
the system just works. So modern marketing then comes in and tries to play with it all. <laughs> we try and create brightly coloured lollies and brightly wrapped pretty things, which are interesting with little toys and creatures. And of course they're interesting. And it taps into that part of our biological system that is perfectly intact and perfectly designed to help us choose the ripest fruit. So I really feel for kids in this, like we as parents can, uh, you know, really support that experience, that bottom up and, you know, cl clear the system as much as possible with aware parenting. And we're often in the food milieu, which is tough going. And I think I'd love to, for you to share if you're willing. I really appreciate Aletha's stance around not using loving limits with food for this reason. Because it's hard, hard gig at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. What I'd really love to share in, in response to what you're sharing is those two things that I talked about last time. So I just want to say the dogs are playing and they're happy. You can hear them joyfully playing. It is the two things I really enjoyed from what Aletha was sharing and what I did with my children is for us to choose as parents, given the information, that's why I love all the information you're giving. What foods are we not willing to bring into our homes? so that we get really clear doing our own research to say, no, actually, I'm not willing to bring X, Y, and Z. And for me, it was artificial flavors and colorings. But from what we do bring in, that we are then willing for them to eat those things whenever they want, however much they want, whilst we are still being connected with them and asking them what's going on in their bodies and what they feel and, and really supporting them to listen in deeply to what their bodies are telling them. And that combination of, we've talked about this, it's not just about saying yes to, to anything because of the culture that we live in. And of course, this changes as they get older and they can go out into the world and buy things and so on. It becomes more about the conversations we're having. But there were two examples that I really wanted to share and that I thought about when you were sharing. One is which I got really into eating these particular crackers last year. They're organic and they're in terms of what they've got in them I know there's all these things nowadays about vegetables and so on but I ate a few packets of them and after a while I just started noticing that there was this there was aftertaste that I had and I just actually got to the point and now I look at them and I just go I don't want to eat those I mean I liked the taste at the time but the oil the aftertaste of the oil was just a no for me and I, I noticed something similar with Sunny about what are they called? You know, ice creams on a stick that have chocolate on the outside and they're, they're kind of not organic ones. Occasionally we would go out and they would go, I want to have one of those ice creams like that. And again, what he found after eating them a few times was that he had this chemical aftertaste and he didn't ever want to eat them again. So there's this interplay, isn't there, between having this choice about what happens in our family, but supporting our children to stay connected with their bodies and ourselves so that we can go actually I don't like that chemical taste or actually and I can taste that particular kind of oil or that whatever it is and I'm imagining we might not be able to taste all of those things but if we have enough of a selection of things that when our bodies aren't going well actually it looks nice and the packaging is great and it's in my case it's organic but actually my body doesn't like that thing when I go in the shop I just look at that packet and I go no I don't want that anymore so it's this kind of interplay isn't it of like understanding that we live in this 
environment where there are all these things happening there are all these multinational corporations trying to sell stuff to us and make things that actually really our bodies probably don't want at all look attractive and appealing but if we can support our children to stay connected enough with themselves that when they are having those things they might need to have them a few times because because of the external wow doesn't it look great this packaging and it looks great to actually go after all I don't like how I feel when I eat that. I don't like the aftertaste. Actually, there's really something not right about this for me. It's quite a thing, isn't it, to trust that and be willing to engage in that process with them to do those things. Whilst knowing at home, particularly when they're young, we can keep those things out and and trust that the, the food that we are giving them is biologically natural enough that those immediate signals will be there. Is any of this resonating? Oh, I love listening. Absolutely. I couldn't help but think of my own personal journey with a particular type of chocolate that I just, (laughs) it took me so many years to work out. It actually wasn't a match. That was our favourite one that we both had our favourite one that we both and we shared about, didn't we? Loved it and we sent them to each other. And then after a while we got, and I see them now, I even picked up the package at the health food shop the other day because everything about it the packaging the That's everything so like, oh shall i and there's a new flavor shall i try those again and i went no i could i recalled the sensations that i came to and but it takes time doesn't it and i think it took me a really long time because i get a kick out of chocolate i get sugar i get a bit of a dopamine hit i get endorphins it's really great quality cacao it's organic and it's got sugar <laughs> and it's got that. I think it's coconut palm sugar, wasn't it? What was it? No, I think no. it's coconut nectar. Coconut nectar. Oh, yeah. But it does that really tricky thing, which we don't have in the wild food model, of it combines food groups. It combines fat and sugar. Oh. So no wonder it took me years Ooh. to work it out. Could you I say a, I a, more about yeah. that? Yeah, carry well, on. Well, we yeah. didn't. Foods weren't combined. They weren't manufactured. So they were in their own natural packaging they weren't you know fat wasn't squashed together with honey or with maple syrup or or with a sweet tuber it was only incidentally in the combination of eating so again it's still this modern food production context even though it's organic chocolate and had really pretty wrappers but that was how it still tapped in to my desires for you know, it was really lovely. and it, But it interested me is just how long it took me to yeah. unravel it. Like it, it wasn't just a one-off experiment. It was a really long time. Yeah. So that's why I just really appreciate understanding these frames of references and what we've done to food yes. to kind of make it more simple for myself. So I'm not creating such a hard time in my system. So if one of my substitutes are that, you know, if I... I mean, I quite like, I still do the food combining, which again is not that usual, but in a handful of macadamia nuts and a teaspoon of honey kind of actually does it. doesn't quite do the, the endorphin dopamine hit of cacao. But again, look, I mean, people who do plant medicine journeys, not, I've got no experience, but we know the information that can be transferred and cacao is often included in that and so I don't want to ever you know not support people 
taking in information from the world in which we live. We are here to be deeply sensory, experimenting and experiential beings. (laughs) That's what we're here. And food is one of the main, luscious, delicious ways we do this. Yes. And we can lead children in this. We can do it because it's so lovely for us. And we can bring our fresh minds and bodies to this experiential process because, you know, it takes a lot for us to unravel what something actually tastes like. And I think this is the gift of aware parenting. Like hopefully there's not a whole lot of stress in the system. It's not being used as a control pattern. There's no rewards or punishments around food. Hope that this is ideal. And then you're coming to this really central piece of connection and attunement, both in the relationship and in what you're engaging in, in the eating or whatever the activity is. And I think that for me is the antidote to we've shared this, is like when we hear parents say, oh, I just need to trust them or they'll be okay, won't they? Like if they've been aware parented, they'll just work it out, like some kind of blind magic thing. And, yes, I think it is kind of magic but it's not blind. And I really appreciate that there's just this real fresh clarity in aware parenting that first and foremost it's about connection and attuning with the little beings in front of us and the little beings within us. And really that brings the invitation for deep nourishment Oh, such a big yes. I love hearing you say these things. And you know what it, it takes me to, as you know, I'm passionate about this experimental model. We, we both have a background in research and really that as parents, we are researchers and including, particularly including this. And we're actually supporting our children to be researchers. And as they get older, to be having these kinds of conversations as well. Oh, we saw that big advert for X, Y, and Z at the shop. And, you know, how interesting is that? And so it's a whole experimental thing, isn't it? It's the connection. It's having these conversations. It's being curious about how we feel in our bodies, how they feel in their bodies. It's, it's that beautiful and kind of experiment in life of like oh okay let's have this packet of chips or crisps and how do we feel in our bodies afterwards and you know when did you actually want to stop and actually what's the aftertaste and did you notice how you felt that night and maybe did you wake up in the morning and did your tummy feel a bit bloated so they're actually getting this really nuanced experience of here's me engaging with the world and what, what do I experience as a result? What's the kind of feedback loop? What am I being told about how my body and this food combine and converse? And what do I want to do about that? And it just becomes a beautiful process, doesn't it? It deepens connection. It deepens presence. It deepens the enjoyment of actually being a parent and supporting our lovelies in this process. And quite often it won't be, oh, I don't feel good or this will be, wow, I feel full of energy, I'm bouncy, I feel amazing. (laughs) And that's where we can actually know what's under. You feel full of sugar, do you? Does that feel full of energy? You can really play at the edge of what the feeling is. Because at some point, and it can take a really long time, as my experience was, but it's still information and information without judgment brings choice. 
Oh my gosh, information without judgment brings choice. I love that. Exactly. And that's where we need to do all our own inner work, be going to our listening partners or our parenting structure to be taking, of course, we're going to feel scared at times. Of course, we're going to have judgments of ourselves or them at times. Of course, at times we want to go, no, don't, whatever you do, don't eat that thing. It's, it's terrible you know, to, to take all of that so that we can be able to respond. If they do feel that excitement and joy, that we can meet them and give them empathy so that they feel the openness that whatever their experience is, we welcome. We're there with them. We're there beside them. We've got their back. We're not going to be judging them. We just continuing that curiosity and then yeah and then what you feel what, what do you feel after that so they can yeah, and keep following keep, keep following, following yes. what happens and keep exactly. connected yes. with it because quite quickly other distractions yeah, come yeah. in and we yeah. we miss what the crash afterwards is about or yes you know misplace it as being something else exactly yeah so it's an invitation with an even more deep connection isn't it for them with their bodies and for us with them and for us with our own bodies and sensations. Yeah. All the while remembering who we are, where we've come from, and I would love to say eating in the most biologically authentic way. And when we don't, which also happens in the wild, blue-coloured berries can look pretty exciting and be absolutely dangerous. But really using that information to go oh no okay that's not a good match for me exactly which is why i i think i talked about in the last episode i'm editing the my book when this chapter about this as well so i'm not sure where i've said but to really know that of course then our reactions to food children are designed to fit into the the family the culture the place that they're born into so if we have really big reactions to things they're designed to be taking that in and taking that in as part of that information piece so it's particularly interesting to know if we do have a maybe we have a control pattern or we have a thing of like oh this is a treat or i'm naughty eating this or all of this the cultural conditioning around certain things that's going to be really potent information for children because they need to be scanning and in the wild that would be you know could be a life or death scenario to go those berries are really poisonous to really remember how much influence we have as parents our own relationship to food how we're creating food how we're serving food and again to put down the the guilt sticks around this but to know that we have so much influence over children particularly in those early years in relation to food because it's around safety absolutely Yes, yes. I think the other thing talking about safety, which I haven't yet mentioned, which I think is also, you know, relevant and of interest, is that because like eating, especially because of how we're designed in that wild food model, like we are very attuned to how we feel around food, especially especially young. And one of the biological mechanisms for protection around that that children have is that they will tend to go for sweet no I'm not talking about anything manufactured sweet as in the sweeter fruits or the slightly sweeter vegetables or anything that doesn't have bitter because bitter in the wild is you know they're toxins usually so especially children I think there is this almost inherent vulnerability because their whole mechanisms designed to keep them safe and I really want to honor that in children and I think it's really hard and harsh if there's a feeling of 
oh, sugar's or sweet is bad because that's kind of a discordance with their own biological setup. Sweet keeps you safe. In our modern world, that's, you know, really messy territory. And the wild food model when you're lucky to get a bit of honeycomb, (laughs) yeah, that's fine. But it keeps especially young beings just constantly putting food in their mouth to experiment, keeps them safe because they will put down anything even slightly bitter, like leafy greens, anything. They'll just put down slightly bitter. Sweet will be the guiding safety mechanism. And again, this is why I so wanted you to come on the podcast because I think understanding these things is so vital, isn't it? And I love that information piece in Aware Parenting, how important information is for us to know that, even that piece about green vegetables. And, and I, I see it so often that it's very common for children to not want to eat green vegetables. And I wonder if you'd share a little bit more about that. And the other thing I wanted to pick up on as well, you were talking about um, in certain cultures as well it being common for there only being a, a small amount of foods to have at one time and how some children will only want to eat a certain amount of things and the other thing I wanted to pick up on in that as well was about different food groups generally being separate so also I find it's quite a common thing for children to want to eat things separately and I think often all of these things can be pathologized in children yeah so what I would love to return to is you know with your deep wisdom around this where can we see in each of these that these are really innately biologically healthy instincts and sometimes we won't have access to the information not everyone's going to listen to this but if everyone feels like a at a baseline children are doing things for good reason and honoring and respecting that as a starting point and giving plenty of space to that I think it's really wise because that brings lots of connection and lots of exploring and lots of understanding and learning. And then from there, of course, parents can choose. So going back to the first one, leafy greens. Yeah, look, I mean, folate is the main, not doing phytochemicals or anything here, but, you know, folate's, you know, driving need out of leafy greens. And kids are, young children are, so naturally upregulated, even if they've got genetic variances. They don't need a lot of folate until a certain age, particularly if they've got a long breastfeeding journey. And again, aware parenting is an attachment form of parenting. Huge advocate for that, which also matches our evolutionary history. So breast milk is a, you know, I can't think of a more amazing food. I can't, nothing compares for a, a, a young child and growing child. And sometimes breastfeeding can be really a long journey. So that was the leafy greens. The second one was, oh, yeah, variants in the diet, depending on where. Like humans have had this ability to occupy pretty much every ecological niche around the world with all the variants of foods within them. And... You know, there's a lot more variance around equatorial countries, uh, a lot more stability in those varieties and a lot of, you know, the typical Australian diet. Of course, there's a lot of variance there too, but I think we tend to get a bit influenced by that Mediterranean model of having lots of different vegetables with each meal and making sure each meal is balanced. But, it, of course, it doesn't work like that in a wild food model, like 
heaps of free choice, but lots of natural limits, like seasonally. I love what you said, heaps of free choice, but lots of natural limits. That's really important information, isn't it? And I think in a way what we're doing is replicating that in a way of parenting in terms of the natural limits, especially again with young children who are not going out to shops themselves or whatever, that we're having those natural limits in the house of what we are choosing to bring in and within that free choice. I just kind of thought that's really replicating that, isn't it? The last thing I have energy or capacity for is doing some limiting thing around food in our own home like it's for me that's such unnecessary stress so going back to the diversity of foods but yeah of course if you move away from the equator like the you know the arctic regions not many people like you know tassie is about as far south and south america in the south but up north plenty of land and long winters short really intense like 24 hour sunlight summers where you're eating buckaloes of berries and really quick growing leafy greens but in the long long winters you know it wasn't a lot of variety people are curious there was a Swedish medical physician and he took himself off to live with an Inuit population for I think nine months and he joined with them and he ate his Three handfuls, of course, you know, blinkers on for those who this is quite painful to hear. But, of course, a whale was how you got through winter in those climates. Uh, And to make sure you didn't, like, we could tap out our protein needs pretty quickly eating animal foods. So it was a handful of protein of skeletal muscle for three handfuls of blubber, some of the skin to give some vitamin C, bit of lichen and some leftover berries and seeds dried from summer (laughs) five foods or less so for those parents who are worried about the kids not being willing to eat much or the other example is an Australian researcher Karen O'Day she did some brilliant work she's a dietitian I think yeah in Australian Aboriginal people back in the 80s and Watching their food choices, like walking into a a shop and buying a dozen eggs and eating a dozen eggs, because if you came across a nest in the wild, of course you would eat what was there. But it didn't mean you'd do it again the next day or for a long time. And so there's this really kind of more open way of thinking about based on seasonality, based on availability. And not just that. Again, using Karen O'Day's example, they're in an inland area for the first three weeks of this six-week study she was doing. And they were just feeling they're eating too much animal protein and they realised they just needed to get to a shore-based, I don't know, it was freshwater or coastal, I don't know. And I just found that really interesting that these were people who had been living in a somewhere around central Australia, really unhealthy, seriously overweight, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, so high blood pressure, high triglycerides, really unwell. And they just went and ate bush for, ended up being six weeks, and all their blood parameters stabilised and normalised. And the interesting thing was that it all happened independent of weight loss because we've had this idea in the Western model that, oh, you have to lose weight if you're dealing with those medical conditions. And the hypothesis was, well, 
what's the role of nutrient density when we're actually feeding the body the nutrients they need in that wild food matrix that we barely understand in the West? You know, health restores in six weeks. So, yeah, lots of variety depending on where you lived around the world. And, yeah, we can take that into our own worlds as well by as best we can reconnecting with what foods are seasonal for us. And the body relies on that seasonality because, like, in summertime, we, we naturally are designed to eat a lot of fruits. And that actually at a subtle level creates a bit of a leaky gut. And so you do a lot of in the environment where you've also got a lot of vitamin D for a lot of immune regulation, we actually do a whole lot of immune tolerance work in that process. So stepping away from this sort of seasonal model of eating disrupts so many of those protective mechanisms that are innate and perfectly intact within us and within children. Wow, that's so fascinating. I'm loving listening to you. <laughs> and so it really speaks to, doesn't it, as much as we can really working with the seasons that we are actually living in and buying or growing foods that actually are in season. And of course, it's never surprising, is it? The wisdom of that interrelationship between our bodies and, and actually where we live and how much incredible stuff is going on without us even knowing amazing and that may be like I mean it's just one of my own examples we've had a bucket load of parsley and really quickly growing it's not bitter it's beautiful I've just been eating parsley yeah. that's been my leafy green for yeah. the last I don't know month and a half or whatever so yummy isn't it really trusting that to and I'm going to be doing an episode on us and our own listening to our bodies but I love doing that and we've had many conversations about that eating lots of one thing for a certain period of time and then just not touching it for months and months because we will feel it yeah eventually exactly. <laughs> if it's if it's a natural food we'll feel it more quickly if it's one of the food combined you know manufactured oh, it things longer. it will take a okay. whole lot longer okay so what we that could be a high, uh, kind of defining statement couldn't it so if it's a natural food that's grown not in a package and it's not mixed up our bodies will pretty quickly tell us if it's a no that's my hypothesis. Yeah. But if it's combined, if it's in packaging, we will generally still get to that no, but it will often take a lot longer for that to happen. Again, this is just my experience, yeah. but that would match yeah. my experience yeah, as well. That's a fit for mm. me too. Yeah. Mm. Really interesting, isn't it? I'd love to hear as people are listening to this, say what comes up for them. And yeah. I don't, yeah. Is there an avenue for people yeah, writing in questions? Or... I was actually thinking while you're talking, maybe we could do a kind of Q&A. So if you'd be willing to come back and I could ask people Absolutely. for questions and we could come back and do a Q&A. Oh, I'd would... actually really love that. Yeah, yeah. I'd enjoy that. Like yeah. That. Okay, let's yeah. do that. So okay. please come along after you've listened to this, come along to anyway you'll know about this on social media and just come and write your questions in I'll, I'll actually make a special post and then we'll come back again and, and um, Louise will answer your questions and I might do as well <laughs> I've got we questions for you too we'll oh, do it for you. both of us <laughs> um, and I'd invite people to you know bring whatever your questions are um, yes aware parenting and food related ones and you're welcome to bring your broader questions around food and health as well. I'm really open to that. Great. Wonderful. So our time's just about up. Is there anything else yeah. that you really wanted to say in this episode? Uh, go have fun. <laughs> go and enjoy food and 
gather the information. Yeah, great. Do you, so in terms of finding out about you, you're mostly a mama at the moment, but you do occasionally offer one-on-one sessions as an aware parenting instructor. Yes. So if people want to find out or contact you to find out more about that, how can they do that? So my information's on your site, Marion, so people can find, I think, email through there. Yes, so that's marionrose.net. And if you go to the Aware Parenting Instructors page, Claire Louise is on there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also registered as a nutritionist and integrative medicine practitioner. So that's where I bring in other modalities alongside this journey for people. Yay. I love talking to you. This has been so wonderful. I just I want us to have lots of conversations. So I'm really looking forward to the Q&A and uh, looking forward to more of our conversations on Voxer that we, that we may bring in here in some shape or form. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. And I love the lovingness and the joyfulness and the wisdom and how you combine those all together parents so thank you so much for coming on I really you are so welcome thank you and thank you for your um, deep loving compassionate perspective that is what's life-changing for all of us listening so thank you Marion thank you lovely so much love to you and so much love to the listeners if you've got any feelings showing up in relation to this it's so normal and natural so I do invite you to Go to your listening partner if you have one. If you haven't got a listening partner, I invite you to to get one. You can find out more on the free Facebook group where you can find one or to reach out to an aware parenting instructor for support with this. And I particularly recommend Claire Louise for this topic. Every aware parenting instructor is really here to support you too. So sending you lots of love and talk to you next time.